This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. All right, well, welcome everyone, and uh, we're just going to make a, a mad dash through a lot of slides and uh, a lot of visual aids but but the focal the focal point of the presentation tonight is is really this question about whether the archaeological records and I'm going to explain what it is it's the monumental stuff you know like the Parthenon that's monumental archaeology uh, and then you have epigraphical stuff that's uh, the inscriptions what's written on stone or clay tablets or um, they use uh, pottery sherds they become like post-it notes and they write on there with ink so that's that's inscriptional evidence called also epigraphic evidence. I'll be I'll use some technical terms, but since you're not going to be tested on it, you can just but I'll explain what they are. But you need so monu- usually we think of archaeology the big stuff, right? The big columns. And then you have also uh arts, the iconography, right? You have these reliefs. You go to the British Museum, you have these lion scenes. You go to the Louvre Museum, you're going to have a lot of Images, right? That that it was history in pictures, and so it, all this. And then you have the small stuff like uh, bones, so that you have a sense of dietary patterns. Um, you have, you know, grave goods. What people die with, and that's really important because uh, you can be, you know, living in Egypt all your life, but after death, you want to be buried back home. That's what happened to Joseph, right? He essentially becomes an Egyptian. He wants to be buried at home. And so the grave goods are very strong signals about a person's values and stuff. And then you have uh, prestige items. You know, like we have our own versions of, you know, Louis Vuitton wallets or whatever, right? And they had their own version. And they have their own prestige items. And they will travel very, very far to get that. And I'll just throw in some specific examples through, just to kind of give us a picture of how we want to shed a myth about the ancient. They were very sophisticated. Take a look at the Giza Plateau and the pyramids. This is 3rd millennium B.C., right? This is very long ago. And the, the sort of skills that these people have. Uh, obsidian. You know, obsidian is a stone, volcanic, that's found in modern-day Turkey, Anatolia. And then in the Neolithic time, 
that's like five, six thousand BC. They already engage in long distance trade to bring obsidian to the area that we care about tonight is that mm-hmm. little corridor, right? The land of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's very interesting to read the Bible and then to study Near Eastern archaeology. Like I I kind of stumbled into it. You know, I gotta tell you, I'm a lumberjack from Switzerland. That's just who I am. I I'm I'm not that sophisticated kind of guy. And but I just stumble onto these opportunities and I I guess I take them. I, that's, I'll, uh, you know, I do take them. So I end up in this PhD program at U of T, University of Toronto. And it's like, who is who in the Eastern archaeology, right? These guys who are, have written a ton of stuff. And I saw a jump ship from Bible to archaeology. Don't tell the seminary, but my PhD is really in archaeology, not Bible, right? Uh, I always say that jokingly, but I did have Bible too, but, uh, but the, the 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 sense of uh, the the whole world and the details is you realize how sophisticated these people are because they they travel right they'll go to great lengths to bring obsidian all the way down here the same with lapis lazuli it's that beautiful blue blue precious stone right it's only found in the Hindu Kush. Badarshan, which is known since 9-11 because that was where the terrorists were hiding, right? But this is the only place you can get that stone. And it makes its way all the way to Egypt. You Google, you know, like King Tut's tomb, and it's loaded with lapis lazuli. So these people are smart. And there's a, a, a sense we need to debunk right off the bat is... You know, we have this idea of this evolutionary theory of social organization. If you have hunter, hunter gatherer social organization at the beginning point, they're just kind of done. But then when you have state level, you know, they're really smart. State level, they, they, they record things. They have monumental architecture. They have redistributive systems with centers of productions. They're really smart. Well, let me debunk this. 1939 to 1945, these state-ordered societies who behave like complete barbarians, right? And, and then you have tribal people. Again, we think tribal people unsophisticated, and, and they're really smart. They write stuff down. They have incredible oral memory. You know, even to this day, you go to Jordan today, you visit the tribes, you know, the Beni Sakr, the Beni Hassan, the, the, these tribal groups, the Bedouins, you know, King Abdullah, he's a Bedouin, right? You know that he's from the house of Saudi in Saudi. It's a, it's a Bedouin class, but you talk to the elders, they'll recount history 300 years back. They'll just know it. And, and so that, lands us, you know, in a few minutes into the world of the Bible. Sophisticated people. It doesn't matter that they write according to the traditional view. The Bible gets to be recorded, you know, 3,500, 3,400 years ago, you know, about 1400 B.C. Moses pens 
or gathers, collects the data from for Genesis. He writes Exodus because he's part of the story. The Lord gives him the instructions for the sacrificial system in Leviticus. He definitely writes the story of Numbers. He hits the the, the deck every time they rebel against him. He knows all about. And then Deuteronomy, my goodness, it's basically a bunch of speeches by Moses, right? And and you know, to the modern mind, how could these people do this in the wilderness? And how could they manufacture the beautiful breastplate of the priest and all that? I, I mean, we have data, you know, going back to the Calculistic period. Calculistic sounds like nothing to you, right? You, who knows what the Calculistic period is? Well, it's about 4000 BC, right? And they have found these caches, these treasure troves of incredibly uh, beautiful metal implements, maces, scepters. I, I didn't. I just came up with the calculistic. Now I don't have slides for that. But hey, Google is wonderful, right? Google calculistic period in Israel. Boom! You're gonna have it, right? You're gonna see. How beautiful. This is like a long, long time ago, right? So I, I think we need to close the distance. Yeah, the Bible, the world of the Bible is very strange. You know, you got these people like Methuselah who almost clocks in at a thousand years. You got Noah who has a baby, well, his wife, at 500. And then you close the distance, you're in Genesis 12. And all of a sudden, it's a huge struggle to have babies for for Abraham and Sarai, Abraham and Sarai, in their 90s, which is more like our world, right? So, you know, people have said, oh, this is just mythological. This is Until you just recover texts, like the Sumerian king list, uh, that talks about how the gods came down on earth. It's their conception, right? The Sumerians is about 3000 BC, an early civilization. And they have a conception that the gods come down on earth. And they have these incredibly long reigns, like 30,000 years or whatever. But then the reigns start shrinking and they become more and more human. Now, it's not a direct corroboration of the Bible and what other texts are, but it kind of gives you a sense of orientation. It's a broad map, right? And I think the mistake people make when they connect the Bible with archaeology, they want a one-to-one relationship, right? They want the the archaeological record, the language, the syntax of archaeology to prove the Bible. Well, good luck with that one, right? Because it's two different languages. But there's enough overlap... And that's probably the main idea you can remember from tonight. There's enough overlap to create a plausibility and a reality about the world of the Bible and then the world of archaeology. Right? There's enough. It's two different languages, right? What the Bible says, it's a language. It's about the, the revelation of God in history to redeem us. Right? That's the story of the Bible. The story of archaeology is, 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 is plotting 
the course of human development. So it's part of anthropology, really. And it, you're just plotting that, but it's, these are snapshots. They're not a full exposure of... I remember my professor of Iranian archaeology who trained people at Harvard, Yale. When he was dying, they all came out of the woodwork and I realized that, man, I, I got to study with Kyla Young, who's like, everybody revered him. He, he just hated statistics in archaeology. He said, statistics in archaeology don't work because you don't have the 100% universe. When you say, oh, this site has 20%, you know, Philistine ceramic. 20% of what? Of what you excavated, which is maybe 4% of the entire site. And the best line to remember to tonight is by Belloc in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. When he says, archaeology is not a precise science. Repeat after me. Archaeology is not a precise science. So you, you have different lines of evidence. And people have gotten their knickers in a twist trying to fit the Bible in archaeology and vice versa. Now, I am a confessional Christian. I believe the Bible is giving us a record that is accurate in what it seeks to, to tell us. And in as much as the Bible gives you a, a window into the social organization of a particular time period, or the political organization, or, or the life ways, right? Family structures... And in as much as you can connect the family structures and the life ways to the archaeological records, it's going to coincide. I think where people get pro- get into problems is when, and then we're going to talk about one site. You know there are dozens of sites we could talk about. I'm going to talk about Tel Arad, and I'll have slides in a minute. Um, but I just wanted to give an introductory kind of framework, and then we can take question. Uh, I learned in this, in our season of our culture, people can only take 20 minutes at a time. So, you know, <laughs> and then we have to have a break. Right? So, uh, Tel Arad is going to be our snapshot of everything that we're talking about, the issues uh, of taking the language of archaeology and the language of the Bible and how they actually fit together. But before we do this, some fun slides uh, here. That's basically the the area we're talking about. And I think what's very important is the vastness, the scope. I'm from Switzerland, like you said. Grew up in Canton de Vaux, had no idea about library. Look, we were partying between Hollande and Villars and then driving by Waymo, I had no idea that was a great center to learn about Jesus. I all I wanted to do was party and go ski, right? So and then this was when I got to England, then I became a Christian and oh library fellowship, cool. And I I've to this day I've never been to a Swiss library, right? So um but I love Library and it's a very special place. And I always get emotional when I think about that. Um, just a lot of 
ties um, in my own life. Um, all right, let's get back to material culture before we get all emotional. So, uh, this is... Okay, now, I'm not going to comment on every slide. We're going to be here until 10. But this is, this is a very famous, you know, Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the, the great bend of the Euphrates over here, you know, and it's, of course, in the news so many times. Uh, but I just want you to see the mountain area. By the way, my brother, oh, is it being taped? Someone I know very well in my family <laughs> is flying to Iran today. You can pray for him. He's taking this trip to visit Iran with a private guide. It's, yeah, pray for his safety, right? Uh, and But the mountains are overshadowing this area. And uh, to this day, whoever controls the lowlands and the highlands controls the whole world. You know, it's a very remarkable part of the world. But again, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here. Cool, cool images, right? You can see that's, that's Israel. Uh, coastline, the highlands. Jerusalem is here. Uh, that's the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley. This valley here is important because it becomes the Valley of Jezreel. Obviously the only place you can grow stuff, right? It's like the prairie, Kansas, right? The rest is very hilly, New Hampshire, rocks. You gotta, you know, deforest. You have, it's very hard to grow anything, uh, except for that area. And it becomes a big area where a lot of battles take place, including the eschatological battle of Armageddon. Uh, but, so I went to throw in a little bit of the geography as a bonus, even though it's not the topic, but it's just connected to what we're doing. I, I love this slide because it, it's, I excavated there for a couple of seasons, Madaba, and that's a, another plain area where you grow, uh, wheat and all that. Ruth comes from that area. And, uh, see that big gash here? That's the Grand Canyon of the Near East, Middle East. Uh, it's called the Wadi Mujib. It's the River Arnon right, in the Bible. So when you read in, num- in Numbers 21, you know, oh, the border of Moab is the Arnon River. It's a huge, you know, demarcation. Almost impassable, right? You have to go down and come back up. It's, it's, it's quite the trek, right? And uh, so, yeah, the Arnon River's here, uh, and I think we're going to be done with this before I lose everybody. And I'm going to show you I want to go to Arad here, and Oh, that doesn't work, huh? Oh, well. So, maybe I'm going to need some help for this. Uh, I thought I could just put this slide, but it's not responding. So. <laughs> Are you still on PowerPoint now? Uh, maybe I need to get out of the PowerPoint. Sorry about that.
I'm going to close the PowerPoint and open it back up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, got it. Uh, you might have to open that file. Oh, yeah. Okay, no, I'm good then. If I had... Yeah, good. Uh, that, that's good, thank you. <laughs> so, let me read the text. Numbers 21 is is like a uh, complete minefield in terms of this intersection between the Bible and archaeology. It, you could call it almost like the graveyard of the approach of covariance between the Bible and archaeology. Uh, and because it just doesn't fit. And it starts there in Numbers 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atarim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So this is, this is the Israelites making their way up into the Promised Land, through the Jordanian side, and they come to this site in, in, this is Arad, so it's in the southern part of the country, and they are ambushed by a Canaanite king, so a local king, that is not named, right? No name. No name king. I, I don't really care about who he is, right? It, that's not the issue, right? But, then there's this ambush, and in verse one, right? And they fought. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Right? Then verse uh, verse two, Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, "If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities cities to destruction." And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they voted. They devoted them and their cities to destruction, so the name of the place was called Horma. Horma is the name for destruction in Hebrew. Harem, Horma, it's the same. It's a, it's a play on word, right? And so archaeologists, they look at this text, and they go to the site of Arad, uh, because it's mentioned there. Uh, and they think about, because he's the king of Arad, right? They think about, oh, there is the site of Arad, the site here. Um, you can see, maybe you can't see, uh, but there is some ruins left here, right? You see that? It's a vast plain. Uh, so it's, uh, it's basically Fort Ticonderoga, right? You have to take that to control the colonies right? and in upstate New York. So it's a, it's a strategic site, a gateway site, that uh, if the Israelites uh, are defeated there, it's going to be very hard for them to make their way up for the conquest of the land. So it's a, it's a very significant defeat, if you will. At first it looks like a defeat, right? They're being ambushed, and some of them are taken captive. But then they fight back, and the, t- the text says that uh, 
they made a vow to the Lord, and the Lord answered their prayers. So, and the Lord heeded the voice of Israel, gave them over. They devoted them and their cities to destruction. So it's a conquest of this site named Hormah, which is Arad, right? Tel Arad is there. Now, Tel Arad, there's a long history preceding these events. Um, the history goes back to 2200 B.C., 2300 B.C. This this is 1400 B.C., okay, just to give you a sense, about 1400 B.C. So the archaeologists go to Arad, post-World War II, right, when Israel has become... There's some archaeology before World War II, during the Mandate period, but most of archaeology just really takes off after World War II, right? Uh, there's some before that during the British Mandate, but so they they go and they they find nothing, zero zip, nothing that would coincide with. There's no destruction of Arad. It, it's it's blank. So the archaeologists of the time they they start thinking, well, what could happen? Well. Maybe the writers of the story just got their their names confused. Because we do have sites around the area that could correspond to that. Right? But you see, the, the fallacy there is, why don't you just dig in a little deeper, no pun intended, <laughs> and try to find out a solution here, rather than just... I'll go to other sites. And the other sites uh, are in the area. But the problem with the other sites, they're Middle Bronze Age. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you. But Middle Bronze Age comes before Late Bronze Age. That you can appreciate, right? (laughs) And the Late Bronze Age is the context of Numbers 21, historically. So they're they're fishing for sites. So it's, it's a kind of a false correlation um, methodology. Oh, we got to find it. If we can't find a rod there, if there's nothing late Bronze Age related, it's basically empty. Uh, we have early Bronze Age. We have an entire city in the early Bronze Age, a wine-producing city with an enclosure wall. It's a big site in the early Bronze Age. So about a thousand years before the time of Numbers 21. So they don't want to connect that city to the late Bronze Age. It's too big of a leap. But they go to a middle Bronze Age context of cities that are around. But that doesn't work. It's like trying to fit a, you know, a round peg into a square hole. That just doesn't work. And then the other option is, that's the easy way out. The Bible is a myth. It's an invention. It's, it's, it's just they didn't remember very well. They, they, they look at it from a much later period, so the, the time of the Iron Age, right, because it goes Bronze Age, Iron Age. Uh, they look at the time of the Iron Age because then it becomes a fortress during the time of the Judean monarchy, right? There is a fortress at Arad, uh, that is actually a temple that is a temple that's built there there oh, 
no, you don't want to see that. Uh, there is the temple. I mean, obviously it's reconstructed. It's a museum at Arad, right? But you can recognize, you know, you can recognize a whole bunch of things. But this temple comes in the 8th century BC. So long after the time of Joshua and Moses when they come through, right? So again, there is no reconciliation possible here. Except to say, oh, these writers who wrote, they have a really shoddy memory, and they just kind of piecemeal the history that fits their purposes, and their purpose is to find the origin of the name of the settlement, which is Horma, so they create a whole mythology about, oh, there must have been a big battle at some point, and in it's it's vaguely remembered, and so now we know how the name Horma came to be. It's very shoddy history that would never stand the standards today, right? And it didn't stand the standard. It wouldn't pass the standard of writing history then. But because it's the Bible, and we have suspicious of the scripture uh, we give we give the biblical historian an F minus for their accuracy of records. Now I want you to go back to what I said earlier. You got these Bedouin tribal Shias today, they'll think three hundred years back and they'll remember. Now of course the fun is that a tribal group that thinks their land is their land, they're gonna have a different recollection than the other tribal group who thinks this well is my well. Watch Lawrence of Arabia, the fight over the well. That's very tribal, very real, 1914, whatever, in the movie. Uh, but these traditions stay. So I, I, my argument is that these, these ancient are careful record keeper. And I say to the modern skeptics, just read the text a little closer. Let's do that, right? Look at what the text says. So you got this Canaanite bloke. He's a king. And his title is King of Arad. But where does he live? Oh, you don't have your Bible in front of you. Who lived in the Negev. That's your first clue, Sherlock. He lives in... His title is the King of Arad. But where does he live? He's your classic tribal warlord. And this is his realm. And his title is Arad because guess what? It's a big acropolis, a big promontory in the plain, the previous slide. So he controls the region. But then you say, well, wait a minute here. It's not the total story because Israel does capture and they devote their cities. The text says cities to destruction. So that speaks... When you say city, uh, when I think of city from Switzerland, 100,000 people, Lausanne, right? I think it's got, who knows now. <laughs> if you're an American, you think city, you think of New York City, right? And so you read this word city, in the Hebrew it's arim in the plural, ear in the singular, and you just think about the big, Maybe you think Babylon, maybe you think Rome, right? If you have had a little bit of history 
under your belt, you think Athens, these are big cities. But you think immediately of a city that has a wall, you know, you have a temple and a palace, you got magazines for keeping storage, and you got lots of homes. But the problem with this, and that's going to be a problem for other words, is that city, and this is going to be a shock probably for you, maybe, but the word is also used for tented settlements. And if you go today, again, I appeal often to ethno-historical, that's why I like your background in ethno-musicology, because ethno-history is also very ethno-archaeology. You drive the desert highway in Jordan today, you'll see these big tented settlements, and they sure look like permanent settlements, because they're, they're big tents. And, and they burn down these tents, right? And I'll give you a verse, a proof text, right? We love proof text. Um, if I can read my own thing here. And where's that verse? There's a verse somewhere in Numbers that talks about... Oh, yeah. Numbers 13, verse 19. I, this is so vain. I'm reading from my own article on Telegram. Uh, so vain. Uh, so this king, I say this. Here, I quote myself. Uh, the king of Arad, probably a tribal head, dwelt in the Negev as opposed to a permanent town. In this context, the mention of destroyed cities perhaps alludes to encampments rather than fortified settlements. But again, I, I think the perhaps is, is the operative word here. Because you have two languages. The material culture tells you a story, and the biblical narrative tells you another story. That's why you need to be very, very cautious of two extremes. Those who absolutely want to prove everything. Let's go find the Ark of Noah. Hey, Noah existed. He did build an Ark. I don't need to go to that museum over there in the Midwest to be proven of that. I'm sure it's a great museum. But I don't need that. But the other, this obsession with correlation, right? The Bible has to be proven by archaeology is also that the other extreme is the Bible has to be disproved at all costs by archaeology. And, and you know, you have a little bit of both in this big, wide world out there, right? And, but what you want to do is, is, is appreciate each line of evidence and because they tell their own story. And, but at the end of the day, I'll be cards on the table. I'm a confessional Christian. There's, there's something divine about the scripture that the Neo-Assyrian inscriptions and all the Egyptian texts are not. They're not divinely inspired. So it, it, in, in doubt, I'm going to stick with the Bible. I'm going to say that the arbiter here is the scripture. I'll give you an example. Not that I have nightmares about it, but there is a sticky point. And, you know, I don't wake up in the middle of the night, oh my goodness, 60 fortified cities with gates of irons in northern Jordan, 
but we don't have 60 cities anywhere in sight, right? There's something in Deuteronomy 3, I think it is. See, I'm trying to uh, forget this text that really bothers me. It's somewhere in chapter 3, because it talks about the conquest of Transjordan, and it sees 60 cities with gates of iron and all that. I tried to look at this verse. No, no, cities are tented settlement. No, it doesn't work because they have gates of iron. So, But in the archaeological record, there's nowhere to be found 60 cities. You know, all the settlement data... You know, in, in archaeology, what you do is you do pedestrian surveys. So you send all these grad students and undergrads in the hot sun and they just look... <laughs> for sherds on the ground, mm-hmm. and then they estimate, oh, this is a late Bronze Age site, this is a middle Bronze Age site. So they've done these pedestrian surveys in modern uh, Jordan, and they, you just don't see 60 cities. And so that's a sticky point. So what do you do? That's a presuppositional thing. It's a faith thing. And I'm going to stick with the Bible. Because I can tell you one thing about archaeology. You know, you can make a lot of, not a lot of money. Archaeologists don't make money. Uh, but uh, you can make a big name for yourself by writing reappraisals of previous excavations. Right? And reformatting the data based on better knowledge of the stratigraphic or the, the sequence of events based on the ceramic evidence. I know that's a mouthful, but but uh, you know it's more. The more sites you excavate, the better understanding you have of the chronological sequence at each of these sites, which then allows you to reappraise sites that had been excavated maybe eighty years ago or sixty years ago. And then so you can reassess the evidence. And it happens all the time. So my point is, here you have a fixed data point, the scripture inspired by God. Again, cards on the table. Maybe not of you are confessional that way, right? Maybe you go, well, the Bible is not... I don't think the Bible is written by God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, And that's okay. But for me, I see it. I see the Bible this way. And when there is a, a direct, apparent direct conflict between the Bible and the archaeological record, like these sixty cities, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just withhold judgment. I'm not gonna throw the Bible under the bus. And so the, the fallacy I'm talking about in, in my sort of long-winded way, is the fallacy of the absence of evidence, right? Just the, just because. You don't find what you want to find. Doesn't mean that the evidence wasn't there at some point. No, it's maybe a big jump for some of us, but it's called post-depositional disturbances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it happens. You know who are the worst culprits? The Romans. But you know what? They had it coming because the Colosseum got destroyed during the Renaissance. You know, what what goes around comes around. The Romans were notorious for pilfering stones, beautiful stones from the Middle Bronze Age. And, you know, they come and 
they take all these stones, they destroy these archaeological sites because they, well, I guess they're recycling, so we need to give them the right? They're, they're, they're taking down these gorgeous sites to build their own monuments, right? Uh, and that's called post-depositional disturbances, right? Because people come in and they, they mess things up. So, yeah, okay, my 60 cities, to close the loop on that one, you probably don't care about these 60 cities, <laughs> but uh, it's a good example, right, of maybe it just, it's gone. All of it. But what's not gone is the ancient record. That's, again, from a confessional standpoint, it stands. So, I, I think that if you, if your call in life is to try to prove that the Bible is true from the basis of the archaeological evidence, uh, you, you're gonna, you're gonna encounter some strong headwinds. But if your, if your purpose is to Try to argue with someone in a coffee shop that claims, you know, oh, the Bible is just a bunch of myths. Look at all these people, 900 years, blah, 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 right? Crazy stuff in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And you could say, well, I get it, but not so fast. Uh, you know, you think you have more sophisticated ways of assessing facts, uh, not so fast, right? You can you can create a context that that makes the scripture plausible, and and then with Tel Arad, I know it's a microcosm of what we're talking about here, uh, but it's one example. We could talk about Jericho. Jericho is the same thing, right? Jericho, Joshua, you know, walk around the thing, it all falls. Oh, that must have been an earthquake. Oh, we don't have any evidence of ceramic ceramic evidence that would correspond to the late bronzes when Joshua is there. Until you find locally produced ceramic, not a boatload of it, but enough to know that you had LB levels there, right? And you can do one of two things. You can admit to the evidence and draw the conclusion that, hey, maybe... This text about Jericho is not so off the wall, or you can just dismiss it. You know, um, th- this this narrative that I'm painting with Tel Arad. Then I'll come back to this temple because it's a very interesting temple. Uh, it's not in Jerusalem. What does that tell you? Right? That's a big no-no. You're supposed to worship Yahweh, the Lord, in Jerusalem, not in the south. Right? In Arad. But I think that uh, when you when you you take the sum total of the evidence that we have here, you you can say, you know what, the Bible is there; it's got its witness, and we can trust it. It's not going to always fit with the archaeological data. But the, the archaeological data is also a little bit of a moving target, to be honest with you, uh, because of the reappraisals and what we know, and uh, especially what we don't know. Um, any questions or comments? Is this helping? I mean, I, you know, the, the, the volume of data is 
enormous. Um, it's just enormous. It's overwhelming. Uh, yeah. So, trying to. Yeah. Just, Joshua. Uh, just two, a couple questions. One, um, with like, uh, at least as I understand it, with like establishing a text for the New Testament, which is another sort of historical yeah. approach to the Bible that I don't really know that much about. I know like Quran was a huge sort of game changer. And I'm curious if there yeah. is like a big, like when people point to, um, because that, that's something that I've heard a lot of, I've heard often referenced and even talked about and read about, about like, oh, this helps us, this helped us establish the trustworthiness of yeah. the text that we have. Is there like one almost like representative uh, Old Testament archaeological thing that sort of has the same like uh, weight? Same weight or carries authority? That. Then, just to follow up, uh, just I was curious, who, do you, who is vast, vast amount of data? Who, who, do you, who is writing on this for non-specialists who yeah. think is helpful? Yeah, I think that, to, I'll start with that last question. Yeah. Kenneth Kitchen, okay. he's yeah. just sort of a grumpy old guy, but uh, Kenneth Kitchen on the reliability of the Old Testament. He's a, uh, Kenneth, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he's an Egyptologist. Uh, world class. I mean, he wrote the book on New Kingdom Egypt, right? He put New Kingdom Egypt. New Kingdom Egypt is like the Exodus, uh, the, all the big events in the Bible, right? So Kenneth Kitchen, by himself, is a world authority Egyptologist, right? World class. But he's also a believer, right? A Christian. And at the end of his life, here he's learned all of this stuff about the ancient Near East. And he's tired of People just poking at the Old Testament is a bunch of, you know, he'll, so he'll come up with something like this. All right, you people who think that Joseph's story is first millennium, not related to the time it's interpreting to describe, right? Uh, you know, like 1700 or something like that. You, you think it's a thousand years later, which basically is a myth. Well, look at the cost of in shekel of a slave in a Joseph story, and this because he knows ancient economics, inflation, and all that. These are values from the second millennium, not the first. So he'll just drop these zingers, right? They are facts. The, the, the plausibility factor, right? That's the the key word here. Is is this Bible story hanging in midair? Or is it part of a larger context? And the answer to that is it fits. Every story fits in some way or another. Right? Not in the detail level, but, but the story is going to make sense. Right? The, the Sumerian king list, you remember I talked about that? It talks about all these kings, these heavenly kings who come on earth and they start losing their eternity. The principle is that as they land on earth, they lose the eternity that belongs to the heavens, right? What happens in the biblical story of Genesis, right? Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden, and God says, okay, you're going to die. But look how long they, li- they live. But that, that lifespan starts shrinking. 
until God puts his foot down, as it were, right? He says, okay, you're going to have 70, 90. So that's the contrast between Noah, 500 years old. He has a baby, and it's not a big deal at all, right? And then this, all the drama over Isaac, you know? This sort of shrinking and the humanity of people that's recognized in the Sumerian king list, the mortality of people. So is this a one-to-one relationship proving that these people have long lives? And No, but it creates a context, a historical context. So, so, so the, the, the context of the Bible can be recovered for us. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have any more slides, so I'm going to put a cute dachshund. Right there. There you go. There's a debate in the house. We have short hair dachshund, and I want the next one to be. And and Donna says, oh, he's a mutt. Cute eyes, but he's an ugly mutt. So I lost the fight for this. But uh, but I I thought I had more slides here, and they must have disappeared. Uh Let's see. I'm interested in hearing that the, your response to Joshua's first part of the question was like, is there a oh yeah, I forgot about Old that. Testament site that's the equivalent of Qumran in terms of like the, I don't know, the gravity of how important it is? No, I, I think the answer it's a combined, it's a your compilation, yeah. like you you have big moments like. Uh, there's a stele, which is a monumental royal inscription from Egypt. Uh, it's called the Merenepta stele. And um, let's see if I can pull that up. Um, anyway, I can I can recall from memory sort of. Uh, the Merenepta is a pharaoh, 1200 BC, right? And this is a stele that's, I think, at the uh, UCL University College, London. I think that's where it is. So it's a big monumental inscription. And Merenepta, 1200 BC, talks about his conquest of Canaan, and he talks about Israel. Israel is wasted; his seed is no more. And Israel, I don't read hieroglyphics, but the experts tell us that the experts tell us that uh, the, the the hieroglyphic for Israel has a people denominative attached to it. So it's not lands, people. And they're in Canaan by 1200 BC, and and so the whole idea that Israel Israel is a construct, a mythological construct. It has no connection with Egypt. It's completely debunked by by Egyptian records. Uh, so it's it's the cumulative. It's not a big Qumran thing, right? Qumran is a big splash. You got lots of biblical texts, you know, around 108 BC to 100 AD. Uh, so it's a big piece of evidence that kind of document the reality of the Old Testament text. But but the Merenepta stele functions this way. Another one is um, 
is the Cyrus cylinder. Um, see this? I'm going to keep the slideshow this way. So it means nothing. It's, you know, inscription on the cylinder. But the Cyrus cylinder, that comes much later, right? And it's, it's, uh, it says this. Um, maybe we should play from the start. Um, there's a boat. Again, it's too much stuff. I'm not going to. Uh, there, there, the text of the cylinder. And you have to remember, these people have a very healthy self-image. All these ancient kings, they, they're, they look at the mirror every morning and they say, I'm just too awesome, I can't take it. <laughs> exalted monarch, in the middle of the gods, relented. He changed his mind about... So this is a good gotcha moment in terms of the Old Testament material culture in a way that just corroborate the Old Testament. Changed his mind about all the settlements whose sanctuaries were in ruins and the population of the land of Sumer who had become like corpse. It, it, it takes a while to figure out how, what, okay, get to the point. This is not Twitter age, right? <laughs> it just embellish stuff. He inspected all the countries seeking for the upright... He took under his hand Cyrus, the king of Anshan, and called him by his name, proclaiming him aloud for the kingship over all of everything. Uh, have we missed a part of the realm that he's not king over? No, I don't think we did. But that's... Uh, and and um, the next one, uh, Cyrus takes control. His vast troops, whose number, like the water in the river, could not be counted marched fully armed at his side. He had him enter without fighting or battle right into Shwana, Babylon. He saved his city, Babylon, from hardship. And Xenophon and the Greek uh, historians recount that, how Cyrus took Babylon without any bloodshed, diverted one of the canals, got into the city. So that's... um, But that's a Greek corroboration of an ancient Babylonian text. But now comes the Bible. Um, Oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's worth reading, right? I am Cyrus, king of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad. King of the four quarters of the world, son of Cambyses, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) But look at this, the perpetual seed of kingship. That's important, because we do need to talk about Jesus here tonight, right? Mm. That the dream of the ancients Mm. is to have a perpetual kingship. Mm. That is divine, a divine kingship. So, so when we read Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, almighty God, a son, that's, that's the ancient world. That's their, that's their thing. Because they want their king to be a god and his dynasty will stay forever. That's the aspiration, the dream, the goal of every king in the ancient world. And only Jesus Christ, our Lord, fulfills that dream. Only he. And I always talk about this, about the king of Egypt in the Exodus confrontation. We never know his name. Good, because he said, who is Yahweh that I should deliver you, right? Okay, fine. 
You don't want to know who Yahweh is? Well, nobody wants to know who your name is. Right? That's why he's anonymous. But then it's, it's more than that, because when the firstborn of Egypt dies, guess what it does to this kingship ideology? It cuts it off. My goodness, Pharaoh, the Pharaonic line, that eternal dynasty is cut off. It doesn't last forever. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords lives and reigns forever. Because he is the only one who conquered death. You know, they tried to manufacture eternal life. It's called mummification when you suck the guts. Well, it's through the nostrils. I mean, they do all kinds of stuff to this body, right? Because they want him to live forever. Well, take a look at Ramses II. He did not age well. Okay? It's not eternal. It's just a shrivel thing. Right? It's, so he's this great king, but um, he's blessed by Marduk. So let's see here. Um, but this is the part, you know, you gotta read carefully these things, right? I sought the welfare of the city of Babylon and all its sanctuaries. And that becomes, the, the segue, segue, how are we doing here? Oh, we got to stop. See, this is, it's very difficult to condense things for me, and I apologize, but at least you remember Arad, the Cyrus Cylinder, maybe, and that, but I want to read this from Haggai, no, not Haggai, um, Ezra. Where's Ezra? Oh, there. Okay, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so, not exact corroboration between the wording of Cyrus Cylinder, which is at the British Museum, and the words of Ezra, but there's enough correlation there that just... It's an intersection, a moment, if you will. Uh, the the, the Dan inscription talks about David, the house of David. The Caesarea inscription has the name of Pilate. That was the first time outside of the Bible when that inscription was in, uncovered at Caesarea Maritima on the coast, uh, first century inscription. That was the first time we had actually evidence that Pilate was actually a real guy, right? So once in a while, you just, you hit it, right? And you hit it hard. But I often say this, we could have a big inscription that says, Moshe was here in the middle of Jordan, and people would still not believe it, right? It's still, you're not going to prove the Bible through archaeology, but when you have these moments, can I take one more minute to talk about Lachish? Lachish is important because Lachish is one of these moments and that may be 
what you were asking, actually. Because Lakish is a site in in the Shafela, the lowlands, the Piedmont, like if you're from North Carolina, right, you know the Piedmont area. Uh, it's a gateway stronghold. And if you look at uh, Isaiah 36, and then the, the parallel text in Kings and in Chronicles, uh, the Assyrians come and they bear down on Lachish, right? And they're about to take Lachish. And they actually take it. And they burn it. And then they come to Jerusalem, that's Sennacherib's campaign, 701 B.C. They come to Jerusalem and they surround it, but they can't take it. And then they retreat back to their homeland. So that's the Bible version. So the Bible describes that as a great victory of Yahweh, right? The Assyrian record, the written records, talks about 46 cities that they talk about Lachish, they talk about Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. That means they never could take it. Right? So that's two lines of evidence. The third one is the archaeology of that big neo-Assyrian siege ramp at Lachish. The, the site is loaded with uh, uh, trilobate arrowheads. Okay? They're, they're Scythians, the, the steppe people, right? And they're trilobates, so they're very powerful bullets, ancient bullets. That's a, that's a Neo-Assyrian standard issue uh, arrowhead. Loaded, the site is, you've got the helmets, you got everything. And then, and then in Nineveh, so in the Assyrian homeland, uh, you have all these Assyrian reliefs of the siege of Lachish. And if you Google Neo-Syrian reliefs of Lachish, it'll all come up. You're going to see these Judeans that are impaled on on poles. You're going to see the Judean warriors on the ramparts. You're going to see Assyrian <coughs> siege works. It kind of looks like medieval warfare. So you see the convergence of Assyrian text, biblical text, archaeology in the Nevar archaeology in at Lachish. It's like your perfect storm. So once in the blue moon, it does happen. And you know what? Believe it or not, people still argue about the details of that. But that's a good example of the convergence. So, um, yeah, I mean, how do I close this? Yeah, I wanted to, to close back to Arad because that chapter 21, right? talks about this language of devoted to destruction. Then very quickly after that, there's that story that Jesus picks up in John 3, the text that says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And then we have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So this this chapter twenty one, you can read it later today or tomorrow, but it's it's the, the context of that ritual of the Israelites complaining and grumbling against Moses and against the Lord. What else is new? Uh, it's not the first time that they do that. And then God unleashes a plague of venomous snakes. And the Bible says there that many people died. So they prayed, and and they prayed to the Lord, and 
asked Moses, can you remove this plague? We're going to die. And then Moses manufactures hammers uh, what looks like a snake and he puts it up on a pole and whoever would look up and see would be saved. Mm -hmm. That's how the the text goes. Mm -hmm. And and then the symbol, if you will, the curse of their destruction becomes the source of their salvation. Now Jesus, from Deuteronomy Claw, whoever dies on a tree is cursed on a pole. Jesus dies on that pole. He becomes the curse. He becomes the curse of death. And then whoever looks up to him that's John's interpretation in John 3. Whoever looks up to him will be saved. So that which is the instrument of judgment becomes the instrument of salvation. Because he's taken on it. He's become devoted to destruction himself. So that we don't have to be devoted to destruction. Well, all we have... And I will ask you tonight, maybe you've never looked up to Jesus in your life in that way. And you need to do that. And that's all you have to do is look up. Look up to Him. And He will save you by trusting in Him. And, you know, that image of the Judean warriors impaled on a pole, that's also the curse of disobedience. You know, that's a visual of the, the consequences of our disobedience, which is death, eternal death. So, Father, I pray that um, I- even in this whirlwind of names and periods and strange words, God, I pray that uh, tonight you would encourage us and with this image of uh, you dying on that cross and and the, 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 these precursors, these Judean warriors on the Nineveh relief uh, walls and and that story of this the snakes in numbers twenty one that pick, that's picked up in John three that that all these signs in the material record that really ultimately point to you, Lord Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords the the one who deserves these grand titles, the only one that can claim to be the king of the universe and the four corners of the earth. You, you, these titles are due your, your name and we give you praise and glory and bless this term, bless this wonderful ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can do Q&A I mean, if you want. You know, professors like to talk. <laughs> Pastors are limited, which is good thing too. Um, yeah. I was reading in the Bible about the building of the temple. Yeah. And um, when the Israelites were in the desert, you know, and they have like it's this really nice study Bible, and it had like <coughs> sorry pictures of the temple. Yeah. And it said that some of the stuff in the temple was like some of the stuff that Egyptians had. Yeah. And it talked about how the Israelites that came out of Egypt, you know, they were working in they were craftsmen and yeah. they were in Egypt, so they knew, they knew a lot of stuff. 
And so I was wondering how much, like, is that really true? That because I always thought, you know, the temple is unique because Yahweh's one God, you know, only one God, and you're not supposed to have a plurality of gods. Yeah. So I thought there's got to be really a big difference. Yeah. But I guess there's also some similarities right. to the Egyptian architecture. Oh, that absolutely. I, absolutely. They're borrowing, and it's it's okay. The art is borrowed. The, the, mm-hmm. the architecture of the temple is... It, yeah, there's uh, Egyptian elements, but the, the, the actual tripartite um, longitudinal, like lengthwise, with the... The court and then the holy place and the most holy place, it's a tripartite. That's a North Syrian model, right? Mm-hmm. And remember that Phoenicians are contributing. They're the architects. Solomon has a collab with Phoenician architects. And Phoenicians are people of ancient Lebanon. And where do they take their cue from? From Egypt and from further north. Because their cultural... They're, they're cultured and they they absorb these high cultures of Egypt through trade, long distance trade, resin trade, the modification from the cedars, cedars to build gates, to build navies. Uh, all the Phoenicians are high power people. And so they're helping building God's temple. But you know, God is God and He's the God of all the cultures. Right. And there's nothing wrong no. with a... It's like our churches. You know how people can fight over the architecture of a church? <laughs> Chill. This is based on the Roman Basilica, which is a completely pagan <laughs> architecture. Yeah. Right? It's all borrowed. You know. Say, so, oh gosh, we can't worship in a theater, right? a movie theater. I don't like it, but there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I like my little congregational... Cruciform <laughs> sanctuary. <laughs> but there's nothing sacred about that. Yeah, that was a learning moment for me because I always imagined in my mind that it would be so different, you know, because God being so unique and one God and not yeah. a plurality. But, but what's the uniqueness there? It's that God is so smart, He used everybody else. Amen. <laughs> but also, <laughs> you, you have this whole temple structure, and what's missing in the temple? A statue. A statue. Right. No, no image of God. No image. Right. No broken image. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. You can close me down, you know. I, <laughs> no, no, I, no, no. I, just, I just think this is a fascinating issue because it's the same idea with, with say, like the idea of covenant in the Old Testament. It's a totally cultural, human mm-hmm. format. Yes. Um, and so you could, in one sense, be discouraged by the use of covenant in the Bible. Like, well, well isn't this a sign that it's just people borrowing from the surrounding cultures and, and it's not really God's divine kind of interaction? Well, the thing that's, to me, is so interesting, maybe it's a parallel, is that um, God uses God uses something that's known within the culture of the covenant. He uses the, the architecture of, you know, it, uh, both because people will understand it and it's a way of being accessible to them, but also in order to distinguish how different he is. Like the fact that it's a temple that's recognizable as a temple um, that looks familiar to people, but then you you, you progress in and, and you realize there's there's no there's no image of the God in here. Right. What's, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's that makes his difference all the more 
startling. Yeah. This is not just an ancient Near Eastern god. Yeah. This is not. Yeah. 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 There's one loop I want to close. The Arad Temple, that picture, that's a big no-no. You only worship God in Jerusalem. And part of what archaeology contributes unequivocally is that there is no pristine era of Yahweh worship in ancient Israel. When God said, when God says. You need to zig, they always zag. And so this temple in the south is is so offensive to God. They're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. But they, they like convenience. Don't like to commute so far north. Just going to have a little temple in the south. A little side operation here. And then it explains why the prophets are so furious. Like Isaiah 1. I thought about that. I taught Isaiah 1 yesterday. Isaiah is furious at the sacrifices that they offer because it compounds their guilt. Sacrificial system is supposed to remove their guilt. It compounds their guilt. Yeah, if he's thinking about that Arad temple, and it could very well be that. Yeah, of course he's mad. So God didn't choose uh, Jerusalem until about Right, correct. 930-something, yeah. And isn't that when uh, the Arad Temple is dated? No, the Arad Arad Temple comes later in the 8th century. Yeah. No, good question. Just real quick, are are there a lot of Mardukes in the ancient, or is this the Marduk that's like also in... um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, it's a big okay. chart. It's okay. the big one. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's, he's at the top of the pile of the pantheon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I don't want to hold you up. Yeah, Chris. Chris um, yeah. <coughs> earlier, you were mentioning how it seemed that you were talking about Deuteronomy three and the Jericho story, and how sometimes you have these missing plot holes, and you have to kind of, depending on if you're a confessional Christian or not, make a decision about biblical accuracy and archaeological evidence or lack thereof. And I'm wondering if there is a middle ground where you can kind of say maybe there is another genre of literature that is going on here other than biblical history that the biblical author kind of Right. Yeah, I think that's that's always been a uh, an escape, escape pod, but it just doesn't work okay. because the ancients have a level of understanding of the truth and accuracy of records that's comparable to ours. Yeah, sure, they use hyperbole, like I've told you a thousand times, don't do this. They, they, they're very sophisticated in their way of communicating. But but I, I do not buy for one second the notion that, oh, somehow our fashion of collecting truth and data is different from theirs. It, it just flies against... The Sumerian records, they, they keep close records of business transactions, legal documents. They're very precise. That's how they built their pyramids, right? They're not sloppy in record-keeping, especially a document like a a covenant. You know, the Hittite version of the covenant, you are cursed and you die if you tamper with what's written in the document. So I don't think any Hebrew scribe would start messing with Moses' documents there. Oh, I don't like this. It's just not to my taste. Yeah.
Right. So, yes, but, but so following that, but we have different types of literature, right? Not all our literature is history. Yeah. So, is what you're sort of saying, like, so Genesis, is that history? Is that a different genre of writing? Like, yeah. To me, that seems plausible, but it could be so. Oh, it's a different genre, yeah. It, it, Genesis 1 is a poem, right? It's just mirrors 1 and 4, 2 and 5 and 3 and 6, the days, right? It's very artistic. Yeah. And, and God has given us a brain to figure out how he's conveying this artistry and how he's conveying his message to us. But for me to dismiss the record as mythological is, is actually a, a kind of almost like you're, you're committing intellectual, you're, you're just not committed intellectually to really figuring it out. I, I think to, 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 to blanket the Bible as mythological just because it's weird and I don't understand it it's not fair to the text. Which I know you're not saying. That's not what you're saying in your question. I know that. Yeah, sure. Cassie, right? Well, I'm so simple-minded, so I apologize. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a story. Genesis is a story. Right. That doesn't mean that it's not a true story. Or that it's not, but it is a story. It's a story. way of telling history, and it's the way that we learn things yeah. in our education yeah. that we don't want to admit to. But you know, in any case, it's the power of storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the big elephant in the room is it's a supernatural story because mm-hmm. God holds. The laws of the universe, you know, Calvin says that, you know, every, all the laws of gravity and all that stuff, even if he didn't know what they were, but the whole structure is held by God. Every moment of every day, every breath we take, I'll be watching, no. (laughs) We are allowed to breathe because God allows us to breathe. So he's he's a supernatural God that manifests himself supernaturally. I mean, if you don't have that presupposition, mm-hmm. then we are then the Bible is mm-hmm. a disaster. Right? Mm-hmm. But I, it's ten to nine. You guys need to go to bed or something. I don't know <laughs> what time is it. Really, it's, up it's up to you. If people have more questions, we can. Yeah, I, everybody, but, but uh, if you I, want to be finished, you can. We can be finished. Okay. <laughs> One last question or comment? I hope this is helpful. I know I get excited and go off on tangents. Yes, sir, please. Um, I'm wondering, so my first history textbook uh, in middle school said Judaism was the oldest religion. And I'm thinking, like, if it's the oldest, it's probably, like, a positive thing for it being true. So... Now I look it up and it says it's like some uh, Asian religion, I think. So, which is the oldest religion? Next question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, That's a really good question. Well, I can tell you, Judaism, if if you do the starting point with Abraham, right? Mm. Uh, You just ballpark 2000 B.C., but you see, it doesn't have to be the oldest religion. 
Actually, I can answer that question when I think about it. Because you have religious artifacts that go back to the Neolithic periods. The Munhata Lady, these are all fertility figurines. Uh, so religion is embedded long before Abraham shows up. So no, Judaism is not the oldest religion in the world. People are religious from the start. But if you want to, then the case, you could say, you know, Adam and Eve are the ancestors of, but they're the ancestors of everyone. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That's a trick question. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It all goes back. Yeah. Well, just one, one way of thinking about that. You basically said it already, but just, but just uh, you know, human beings are religious yes. and come up come up with religious explanations for the world and what they see. And, and, and so in one, in one sense, it, it would make sense to say that, like, very, very early on, people are, in a sense, constructing religious ideas. But when you have Abraham, it's it's the other way around. It's God revealing himself to yeah. to a person, rather than a person conceiving Absolutely. of God. It's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's God coming and saying, and this, is, this is reality. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's like God just, you know, yeah. Just one more, like, do you think there's some difficulties because... Um, and kind of heading into like the more religious aspect, like uh, these other ancient, uh, other ancient uh, people groups. I, I don't, I don't know the terminology, but like for, for instance, like Marduk, like there's ancient people that have taken their creation story that we hear in the Bible and like have created their own yeah. mythological like creation yeah. story. So it's like it goes far back but you have these people and so now when you see all this these mythological creation stories but up with the Bible's the divine creation story. Like I don't know if you have anything to like say towards that, but um, No, I think every every story that echoes or reminds you of the biblical narrative is a huge statement that we are made in God's image and that desire to understand even if it's opaque like the Sumerian king list like the, the, the creation stories Mesopotamian creation stories based on you know, the erratic flood patterns, like the flood narrative, based on the erratic flood pattern of the Euphrates. Um, that's all part of what Paul talks about, Romans, you know, we have general revelation of God. We all do. Everyone created in God's image have a God category there. And they have to be able to recognize he's the creator. That's the, We all held to account for that. That's what Paul said, right? Mm-hmm. And then if we deny the Creator and fall for idolatry, then we get to for him. But yeah, I mean, I, I think bring it on. Let's excavate more sites and find more awesome parallels. Lockos, whatever, right? Lockos that precede Moses' Lockos by a long shot.
But talk about that gory ox. Go figure, right? There's something about this gory ox in the ancient world. Keep track of your gory ox because the Mesopotamian law codes have that rule, almost word for word, the way the Mosaic code has it. Yes, sir. I have a question about, um, so, obviously this uh, lecture was about archaeology of physical realities, and, uh, like, but, you know, we are living in a world that three realms of realities, right? There is uh, abstract realities, physical, the metaphysical realities, and physical realities, and then... Cognitive realities, right? So, like, I mean, obviously, I'm kind of think that like archaeological aspect is not for me, like personally, it's not limited to physical realities. But like, we can think of as archaeology of metaphysics, archaeology of cognitive minds, right? Like human minds, we can anatomy of human minds, uh, archaeological aspect. So like, I, I was curious, like, how does this, like, because of reading this, uh, we're looking at perspective of this, um, archaeological perspective of this all three realms of realities, like how those three things are interacting, uh, and uh, how does this, this dynamics produce, like, what kind of theological contribution uh, in this? Yeah, I think that the, the the touch point is is of the metaphysical or the spiritual. I can use this word is is all the religious artifacts that we find, mm. the, the the rituals. Right? There's a ton of stuff that that point to the rituals in the archaeological record. Absolutely, and of course, one vile one is is human sacrifices. Right? Mm-hmm. That's just through you know, through the ages, it, that's one characteristic of the ritual of sacrificing to the gods that which is most precious. Uh, even to a place of, I hate to end the evening with this image, but in Carthage, Phoenicians, right, Canaanites, mm. they found hundreds of amphoras with burned infant uh, skeletal remains. That That's, that's really brutal, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Maybe we should not end with this image. <laughs> but uh, but you, you talked about the ritual, you know, mystical, and archaeology does give us a, a, a sense of that, too. Um, yeah. Yes, Esther. Thank you for pointing out the relatively short amount of time Oh yeah. And, and then, yeah, there's some of them that aren't, you know, excavated at all. Oh. There's like, oh, we know it was here because there's like this one pillar that we found or something, but there's probably yeah. a whole. So I think that was. Thank you for sharing that. It's not yeah. really who's making a comment, but. Yeah. Yeah. Because of what you said about the reappraisals that are ongoing, because there's so yeah. much still underground or just. Yeah. Oh, there's a ton of stuff yet to be yeah. uncovered. Yeah. 
and uh, even in Israel, just look at the Jerusalem Post or Eretz Israel on their websites. They, they'll routinely have, oh, we found this and we found that. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's always something coming out of the ground, mm-hmm. which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.